Chris, thank you for coming here and happy birthday. Absolute pleasure to host you on this wonderful day. Uh, yeah, Danny, thank you so much for having me. What what a wonderful birthday present to be able to share this with you. Yeah, and I actually I asked you how you prefer consuming books because I wanted to get you what I know for sure by Oprah, but I was curious if you had read it before. So, have you read it before? And, and no, can I gift I that to you? Read it. Wow. Awesome. I want to ask you, how do you normally consume books? Uh, physical, physical copies are how I do it. But I've been transitioning a little bit to Kindle. I've listened to audiobooks. What I realized is I love consuming content so much. And that is what allows me to interview such a wide range of people. Is it the same for you? Look, I, I'm the same way. I love consuming content. And it's easier than ever now to consume content with the supercomputer that lives in our pocket, right? I think for me, to go back to the physical or audio or Kindle book question... I love the idea of grabbing a physical book and taking it on a plane or something like that. Like, I feel like you're making an agreement with yourself. Like, I am going to do this thing. When you're listening to an audiobook, you're doing it on the same platform that you write texts and emails and Instagram and take photos. Like, this does so many things that I feel like that when you're adding one more thing onto that, which is listening to a book, it doesn't feel special. It just feels like maybe another podcast episode or something. So... I'm actually boarding a flight tomorrow to Philadelphia, so I'm taking a physical book, and there's something about that where you're like, this, this is something I'm going to do. Yeah, the singular focus of a physical book is really important as well. But Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but but I will say that like the hack of being able to listen to an audiobook on one and a half times speed is, I mean, that's a huge thing. I just came across this thing on Twitter, which was, it's called bionic reading. Have you heard of that? No. So basically what they do is they highlight certain parts of the words that in a paragraph and you can read faster as a result of doing it. It feels like your brain is on steroids because you're reading so fast. It's so easy. So wow, I'm going to have to write this down. Bionic reading? Yeah. I'll, uh, okay. I'll send you a link afterwards. Okay. But please do. I want to take it back to you, your story, go deep on your history way before bionic reading. And I'd love to start with the fr the fifth period. What was the fifth period all about? Wow, the fact that you even know what the fifth period is. So when I was in high school, we had a communication studies class and we put together, I'd call them TV segments. I don't know that they're really TV segments, but we put together, let me back this up a little bit. We had to, we, Everybody in the class had to write a three-minute TV segment and a one-minute commercial every single week. That was part of the assignment. Also, the fact that we're in high school, like making quote-unquote TV segments was so exciting. The end of the week, we would all vote on like, all right, this is the best commercial. We'll make that. And this is the best TV segment. We'll make that. We broke off into groups of like five, and we each made our own segment, our own commercial. At the, uh, the end of the next week, we compiled them all together into a TV show called The Fifth Period, which used to, before I was there, used to actually air on TV in my hometown. Afterwards, we just watched it together in the class. But yeah, it was a, it was a TV show. I guess that was my very first television program, The Fifth Period. When you were doing that, were there particular parts of it that you enjoyed more than others? And did you feel a sense of joy and, and like a, a knowing that you would be doing something like this later on in your life? 
I loved all parts of it. That was the really cool thing of communication studies class was we rotated around. Sometimes you were the audio operator. Sometimes you did the camera. Everybody kind of went in on the editing. And then depending on what the skit was or the segment or whatever, different people would be on camera. But after a few months, it just kind of got to a point where they're like, oh, yeah, well, Chris will be on camera, of course. And I'm like, okay, like, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I had dreams and goals and aspirations of one day doing that for a living, but it seems like such a long shot. Like that would be like playing basketball at the YMCA and being like, yeah, yeah I'm going to play basketball professionally one day. It's like, yeah. So does everybody else in here wants to do that same thing too. Like good luck, buddy. And I just realized and we can fast forward a little bit in the story and I'm sure we'll get to this, but I went to college for communication studies and again, still the dream, the goal, the aspiration. I was so passionate about broadcasting. I wanted to do that for a living. And it wasn't until my senior year when I woke up one day and it just hit me of like, oh yeah, when we graduate at the end of this year, we got to go work for the rest of our lives. And that hit me so hard, like a ton of bricks. Cause you know, I was 21 at the time. You can't fathom what the rest of your life feels like. You can barely fathom that you went to college for these four years. So I was just in that moment, I decided I didn't want to be one of those people that hated their job. Why? I knew too many people that couldn't appreciate Sunday and couldn't enjoy Sunday because they knew they had to wake up early the next day and go to a job they didn't like. So that for me was the, the catalyst of like changing my life, at least changing my perspective. If I could try really, really, really hard to be on TV or be on the radio and fail, at least I could say I tried. And I think there's too many people that look at the big task in front of them. They look at the mountain in front of them and they go, I could never make it up that thing or I could never accomplish this thing. And then they never even start. So for me, it was like, I'm just going to start. I'm going to put everything I have into this. And if it doesn't work out, I can't look back and go, well, what if I did this thing? What if I did this thing? I'm going to give it my all. And if it doesn't work out, it just wasn't meant to be. What made you say that or what made you act on it where a lot of people might say that, think that, or feel that, but acting on it to me feels like a different thing. What made you act on it? I felt like there was like this white space. Like I, I kind of, I knew what all my other classmates were doing, which was going to class and taking notes and writing the essays and taking the tests. But I knew that nobody, at least where I went to school, was trying to do anything like in the community. And there was a community-run television station in the town that I went to college in. Of course, there was a bunch of radio stations there as well. And there was also a TV station there, a CTV affiliate, CTV Kitchener. And I just was like, well, if I ask, if I ask if I can come in and volunteer and they say no, at least I asked. Like, that's, the, that's literally the worst thing that could happen. They say, sorry, we can't do that. And I go, huh, all right, no problem. So I think for me, it was the power of just asking. And I've realized like a long, like I've realized for a long time. And I realized that up until that point in my life that all you got to do is ask, like life gives you what you ask from it. And if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So I figure, well, I might as well ask and see what I can do. And I also think that there's like this 
this like this love and this appreciation for students, especially when they're in college or university. I feel like in the community, people like want to go, yeah, yeah. Like I remember being there and I want to help out. Like, of course, if we have an opportunity, come on in. So that was just it for me. Figured ask. And if you hear no, all right, on to the next one. <laughs> and asking is something that you have learned and perfected so much over the past 20 years, asking, literally asking questions. And so I'm curious as somebody who has asked questions for 20 plus years and probably before then in the fifth period, what <laughs> makes for a good question and what helps create a sense of connection between you and the person you're asking? I think for me, a good question begins with asking like the obvious thing that anybody that's watching or listening would want to know the answer to, especially if it's somebody that maybe isn't that well known. I think that you've got to ask the question. Like, I remember this actually specifically. I did an interview. My very first wrestling interview was in 2007 with Bobby Lashley. He was the ECW champion at the time. <laughs> I was living in Vancouver and I was hosting a show called 969 on MTV2 Canada. And I was so excited, massive wrestling fan. Here's my chance to do my first like professional interview with a wrestler. And he comes, he has the big ECW championship belt. We do what I thought was like a great 10, 12 minute interview. And then I show my boss when we're ready to air it. And she goes, you didn't ask him about the belt. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, he has a big, giant, shiny belt on his shoulder. And you didn't even like ever mention it or explain it. And I went, oh, yeah, come on, everybody knows what it is. It's a wrestling belt. She's like, no, not everybody knows what that is. You could have made a great bit with that belt. Maybe you would have held it. Like, you didn't ask him about it. And I went, huh, that's a, that's a really good point. So I think that that's, that's a great jumping off point. I think that, you know, we all, we all have those people, uh, whether you watch them on TV or you listen to their podcast or whatever it may be. There's like that burning question that you've always wanted to ask. And if we've learned anything that when you type those, you know, questions into Google, other people are often asking the same thing, right? That's the great thing about Google is like, I feel like there's no question that hasn't been asked in there. So I think that it begins with something like that, but I also think it begins with asking it in a way that perhaps hasn't been asked before. And I think that when you're talking to somebody like I've done a lot of interviews with celebrities who are in movies and, you know, when you sit down with them and they're doing 40 or 50 interviews a day, I mean, you, you can bet that they're hearing a lot of the same questions. I think it's the idea of phrasing the question differently. I'll give you an example. Instead of saying to an actor, like, what was it like working with Steven Spielberg? Their answer will be like some really kind answer about, oh, they're such a nice person. They're so great. It was just unbelievable. All the movies he's been part of, and now I get to be a part of it. Like that answer is fine. But I started twisting that question a little bit. And I started asking it in this way, which started getting a much better answer. I would say, how amazing is it that you got to be in a movie directed by Steven Spielberg? What's one thing that you learned from being on his set that you'll now take with you to the next set that you're on? Oh, wow. Then you get a, like a deeper answer. Okay. So you've interviewed the rock nine times. What's one thing you've taken from those nine interviews and taken to your everyday life? 
I would say the biggest thing from The Rock is who he is as a person. When you meet him, he's everything that you could ever want him to be. And they always say that you shouldn't meet your heroes. But if your hero happens to be Dwayne Johnson, you should do whatever you can to meet your hero because he's funny and he's kind and he's like so humble, but he also is self-aware that this is an important moment. Like he, he realizes that you're going to go home and you're going to tell all your friends and your family that you met Dwayne Johnson. So he turns the moment around and he makes it special for you. Oh man, you've been working out or, Oh, look at that pocket square you got there. So I think it's that, it's that idea of like making the moment inclusive of everybody rather than just being question, answer, question, answer. And also the very first time that I met him, he has an energy that just fills the room. We were all waiting backstage. It was Monday Night Raw, which was so cool as a wrestling fan to be able to meet him like in the setting where I became a fan of him. And he walked in and he had this energy that just filled the room. And then he went up to everybody. Yeah, I'm Dwayne. Good to meet you, Dwayne. Hi, I'm Dwayne. Like, yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> well, you didn't mention in the one time that he called you out for looking down at your notes. And I was so curious what you were thinking in that moment. I'm like, oh, my God, this is one of Chris's like big dreams and big missions. And, and here you guys have some good chemistry and rapport. And he's just straight up telling you, like, look at this guy looking down at his notes. Like, what does that feel like from your perspective? Well, he actually started the moment by going, you looking at your balls? And I'm like, oh, what? And like that, that's a, and a perfect example of The Rock being self-aware and trying to, like, bring you into the moment. Like, yeah. he knew exactly what I was doing. I walked in with a little tiny thing of just a few little notes. And I put it basically underneath my thigh and I glanced down to go, oh, that's the next question. So that's the rock just taking the piss out of you. And that's what he does best. Like this is why the rock is as successful as he's been, because he's a human and he makes these moments human and he includes you into them. So the rock got to start wrestling and you did as well with Chris Sharp in the HCW. What was that like? This was our backyard wrestling federation. Federation, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's not a federation. This is our backyard wrestling group yeah, when I was 16 years old. And it was with me and eight to 10 of my best friends in my hometown, Pickering, Ontario. This is when backyard wrestling was a really big thing. This was 2000 and 2001. Like the heart of when like the Attitude Era of wrestling was the biggest thing and The Rock and Stone Cold and The Undertaker and Mick Foley and Triple H, like they were the biggest stars of the time. And they were <laughs> having all those commercials on WWF television at the time that was like, don't try this at home. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah but we know what we're doing. Don't worry. So it began with, there was a group of us that would always walk home from high school together and we would stop off at our friend Becca's house and Becca had a trampoline, AKA a wrestling ring when you're 16 years old. And me and two of my best friends at that time, Will and Mark would always go there and it was like rock bottoms and DDTs. And we learned like, oh, those are actually pretty easy to do. And then we learned that a mutual friend, Greg, had this little backyard wrestling thing they did in the backyard with like gym mats. And I guess this would be like my first foray into like, I don't know, some sort of entrepreneurial adventure or venture because I was like, all right, we got to call it this and I'm going to set up a website for this and we're going to do it every Thursday and we're going to get clips out every Friday. Yeah. 
And of course, I booked myself to be the two-time champion for Sharp. <laughs> Wait, you said you got clips out? Oh yeah, we had we had the H the HCW dot net, which we couldn't even get the dot com in two thousand. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I wanted to buy HCW dot com, which I'm sure was taken you know thirty years ago. And then I was like, oh, I'll get HCW dot net, not realizing that like a three letter domain is like incredibly hard to get and worth a lot of money. So, oh yeah, there's clips. If you dig deep enough, you'll find. It's been a while because it's not like stuff I'm super like proud to put out there but you know i'm not hiding from it but it's out there yeah there we would have our little shows on thursdays and we would put the clips out the next day which in the year 2000 meant you would put the tape into a vcr and the vcr was connected to a tv card that was plugged into the back of my computer like this was this was like real high tech at the time how much did the internet play a role in your life? Because doing creating a website at 15, 16 is something that I did, but not a lot of kids in my hometown were doing. So what, what role did the internet play? I remember getting the internet through one of those AOL discs that like were mailed to us. So AOL used to do this thing where they would mail you a CD-ROM and it would be like 100 free hours. And my parents didn't want to get the internet at that time. We're talking, I think it was 1998. So I'm 15 years old. And my parents were like, we're not getting the internet. And I'm like, I think that like, it'd be really helpful. And, and I get it. Like that was a lot of parents at the time. They just didn't understand it. And I remember I would like get these CDs and like each month would like start a new one because it was like a free version of the internet. Or I would go to the library and use the internet there. I think you had like a one hour time limit. And I was like typing away as fast as I could to like get as much done as I could get done. The internet changed my life. The internet changed everybody's life. But I think it was even more exciting for my generation because we were 14 and 15 and 16 when the internet was starting to become a thing. So we were able to ride that wave into high school and then into college and then life beyond that. We were the first generation to be able to do that. So not only did I have a website for our Backyard Wrestling Federation, but I also had a fishing website. I was so passionate about fishing that I started a fishing website called fishingontario.cjb.net because cjb.net was like this free URL extension instead of it being like, I also had a GeoCities account, if you remember that. GeoCities way back in the day. Like GeoCities and Angel Fire were like the free domains. It was like geocities.com slash coliseum slash something else slash a bunch of numbers. That's what the internet looked like in the late 90s. And your MySpace account for the the band is still around. <laughs> are, the, are the songs still on there? The songs are still on there, but you can't play them. Or at least I couldn't play them. Oh, when I tried no to way. Earlier today. Yeah. MySpace.com slash the the band Canada. Yeah, that was our band basically in college and then right after college it was th me and three of my best friends we it was it's so it was so much fun it was also so silly because it was just us in my buddy pat's basement and i'm gonna be honest i played guitar in the band and i sang backup pat did most of the work like our friend pat mccormack was so talented he could play every instrument and he could sing and then when it came time to actually record the songs like pat would do most of the work and i'd just be like yeah i'll just play these three chords right here 
Were you the one responsible for uploading it or, or was Pat? Pat did most of that stuff. Mm. I was just responsible for like showing up. Actually, I wrote some of the songs with Greg, who's our lead singer. I, I'm talking about this like it was a real band. I, I guess it was. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, so much fun. I, and I still like whenever I pick up the guitar, I'll play a few of those songs just because, I don't know, there's something about music that's so nostalgic, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that Eric Church sings about this in his song Springsteen, like funny how a melody sounds like a memory. And it's that idea of like hearing a song and instantly it takes you back to a moment in time. And I think that that's a really fascinating thing for me. Like the second I start playing one of our songs, like, later <laughs> so many silly songs like it was is another one of the songs it takes me back to an exact moment in time and and i love that yeah so how much what's the similarities between creating music creating interviews and wrestling is there any through line you can put through so many of your different passions i would think that the main through line is just creativity yeah. And also in all three of those things that you just listed and all the other things that I'm passionate about, it's just the idea that like it's possible. And I think that way too often someone will see someone on stage at a rock concert and be like, oh, man, I wish. And it's like, well, stop wishing and start doing like they didn't just wake up and know how to shred on the guitar like they learned how to do it. And I think that that's a really big thing is like, don't be afraid of step one. Don't be afraid to fail. Like I'll use the guitar as an example because we've been talking about this. You're going to be awful for the first like six months and your hands are really going to hurt where you're putting your fingers on the frets. But it's a matter of like realizing that you're better today than you were yesterday. And then you're going to be better the next day than you were today. And like I think it's continuing along in that path. And I think that far too often people will see someone who has success whether that's in business or in sports or in music or in life, whatever it happens to be. And they just go, well, it must be good for that person. It's like, yeah, but they worked really, really, really hard. And so often we don't hear that part of the story. And that's what I love to do on my podcast. I love to break down people's stories because too often we just see the finished product. And I think we can blame social media for a lot of that. We just see the finished product because it's all shiny and nice. And that's what gets you know a lot of attention and engagement on TikTok or Instagram. But what we don't see is like the journey along the way. And like, where were they at five years into this journey or 10 years into this journey? Instead of seeing Tom Brady with seven Super Bowl rings, like where was he along this way? And I think it's so interesting to see that because when you can see that that's possible with somebody else and that they've accomplished something, then you know that it's possible for you too. When was the first time you learned that lesson? Well, look, I'm learning that lesson every single day, <laughs> but I think that the first time I learned it, I mean, if we're going way back here, the first thing that pops into my mind was the first sport I played was T-ball. And I remember like, there's a learning curve with any sport, but with T-ball, it's the idea of actually getting the bat to hit the ball and not hit the tee. So I think that that was part of it. Like, it's just that, that learning curve, and then baseball into hockey. And then from hockey, I played a bunch of other sports, but it was the idea of like, all right, if I can be better now because of this practice I had, or this game that I had, or this experience that I had in a game, guitar was another one. I picked up guitar when I was 16 
and really, really long process. And like, you really have to commit to the idea of like, all right, this pinky goes here and then the ring finger here. And then like, I'm, you know, your hands like this weird shape and you're like, oh, that's a G chord. Okay. So I think it was, it was that idea of like, this sounds, and, and this sounds better now. And then you'd play it for your friends and like, wow, you've gotten so much better since I heard you two weeks ago. And like that positive reinforcement, I think really helped a lot too. Yeah. And the thing that keeps popping up for me about your story is just how many different things you're willing to step in the arena for literally wrestling, music, fishing, putting yourself out on the internet. Like, why are you so comfortable stepping into the arena? I'm just a passionate person. And when I find the thing that I'm passionate about, I dive all the way in. I don't check the depth of the water. I don't check the temperature of the water. Just dive in. And I'm this way with everything in my life. So I just bought a house and we want to renovate the kitchen. And instead of just being like, all right, you know, like give me a kitchen with some nice cabinets. I'm like going into detail of like, all right, do I want a 30 inch range, a 36 inch range or a 48 inch range? All right. Well then now I should Google what the best brand is. Ooh, that seems expensive. Maybe I should Google what the best mid range brand is. All right. And then like, yeah, I crawl into bed at like 10 o'clock because I've gone down a wormhole like uh, or I, I go down this wormhole of like, you know, I'll just, I'll just look at a few more reviews here. And that's just the way I am with everything in my life. And I don't know why that is. I, my mom will tell you that I've always been that way, but that's just how I am. Like when I get excited about something, I get really, really, really excited about it. So I think that that's really helped me in like my broadcasting career. I think that's helped me with what I'm doing with podcasts. I think it's helped me. I, I fished in tournaments for many years in bass tournaments. I think that helped me a lot of just kind of like dialing in the details because fishing is all about details. The funny thing is, though, once we do build this kitchen, I'll never look at a kitchen <laughs> website ever again. And I, at least I can separate myself from that. Yeah, that that's a good quality because last thing you want to do is be fishing all the time. And I mean, thinking about the, the kitchen nonstop when you already have it. But, you know, it brings me to the point of, you're obsessed with the idea of what makes great people so great. Mm. And you're thinking about that in terms of the kitchen you're creating or fishing or anything like you're obsessed with what makes greatness. And so I guess my question to you is like, what makes you in particular great? I don't, don't give me this. Don't give me this. I, I'm not great yet. I don't know. You've done some incredible things and you're, Certainly, maybe not where you want to be, but you you have to st step back for a second and say, wow, I'm really great at interviewing. I'm really great at getting people to open up. I'm really great at these different facets you've created for yourself. So like, what makes you great? Well, that's very kind of you to say. So thank you, Danny. I, I think for me, it's just that I haven't been afraid to chase after what I want. And I think that the second part of that is I'm not afraid to hear no. So I think that that's been a really big part of it. It's like, you know, going back to the story we were just talking about of like, if I wanted to get a volunteer job or an internship, you just kind of, you got to ask. Yeah. And I think I haven't been afraid of that. And I think that too many people along the way will already create a story in their brain of like, well, I could never do that. You know, I, would, I would look like an idiot if I asked for that. I'm not going to do that. And I think for me, it's just like, well, just ask. And if it doesn't work out, then, you know, find a different way to do it, but you should probably start with asking. 
And I think that that's it for me. And it's funny how, now that I think about it, it all kind of ties into like everything I've gotten, all the interviews that I've got is because I've asked. Like there's very few moments where something just kind of pops out and you're like, wait a second, you said the thing about the thing. I didn't, oh my gosh, I can't even believe we talked about that. But like Tony Robbins talks about how life gives you what you ask of it. And I truly believe that because two people could ask a similar question phrased a different way and get two very different results. So I think it's be specific for what you're looking for. And that that's advice for interviewing. And I think that's just advice for life. Like be specific for what you want and don't be afraid to ask for it. So what are you asking for right now? More. That's, that's been a big thing for me is I just want more, like more of everything. Like I feel very, very grateful to be able to wake up and do something that I'm excited to do every day. And then, you know, go to bed at night and be proud of what I've done that day. And that's how I've always defined success. So for me, it's just, I want more, like, I want to be able to do that, but like turned up and also like do more of the things that really juice me and turn that up too. So yeah, the simple answer is just more. Yeah, I love that. So we've spoken about how you have this great skill of asking and being willing to ask and put yourself out there. And I'm curious what you would tell people who don't have that skill or are trying to build this skill. What would you do? What are small things you might do to help build it? I would say read the situation. That's a really big one. And I think that that's a really big part of interviewing too, is just like, learning how to listen and be present. But in terms of like asking, I'd say just start with small things, like start with really small things and don't, the biggest thing, don't be afraid of what the answer is going to be. I think too many people psych themselves out as like, well, you know, I could ask this, but if they say no, then what? It's like, I don't know, figure it out then. But like, don't go into it with this attitude of it's not going to work out. That's not going to help anybody. So I would say just start with small things, like really small things. Like maybe next time you're at dinner, be like, hey, would it be okay if you gave us an extra loaf of that bread? And the answer is going to be sure. <laughs> so I would say just start with really small things and go, huh, wow. I didn't never realize that. And also, unless you're really putting somebody out, like... Like one of the big things in LA is like, you never ask your friends to pick you up from LAX. Like that is like the cardinal sin because you know, the airport's just such a disaster with all the construction going on and all the traffic that's always there. So it's like, like, don't ask something that's like inconvenient for somebody like, Hey, could you take two and a half hours out of your day to drive me to the airport? And then if you're not doing anything on Friday, could you also pick me up? I'd say just start with like really small things that are like, that require minimal to no effort on the person who's giving it to you. Like if you're, you know, uh, like I said at the restaurant, like that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. That's a great example. And Noah Kagan, who I recently interviewed has this great idea of like, ask for 10% off your coffee and see what the person says. And just yeah. can't say like, uh, this is for a challenge or this is because someone told me like, just ask for it and see what happens. And just getting comfortable with the idea of rejection is, is so powerful. Yeah, I had Chris Voss on the show, former FBI negotiator. And yeah. I mean, that episode was so powerful because there's so many little things. You don't even realize that you're in a negotiation with a lot of different things in your life all the time. And he talks about like when you're checking into a hotel, just like really simple things. Like 
he'll he'll say something like a like a joke like, "Oh, do you have the do you have the Chris discount?" And they'll be like, "The what? The Chris discount? My name's Chris." And even if they don't give you any sort of discount, they'll just like it, it might make their day or might make them smile or might get them out of the. Uh, the routine that they're into, you know, so just little things like that. Or maybe they'll go, oh, we don't have the Chris discount, but ah, how about we say you're a triple A member and you're like, sounds good to me. You don't get it unless you ask first. I will. You- I will often joke now when I check into a hotel, total joke. And it's worked a few times, but I'll say, they'll say, oh, we have you here for two nights and a uh, single uh, king. And I'll be like, well, you know, I'll just take your finest room, whatever your, whatever your finest room is, I'll take it. And sometimes they'll be like, well, actually, oh, we do have a suite. Oh, we ha- I'll upgrade you to a junior suite. And you're like, okay. <laughs> That's the best. Uh, you brought up LAX before, and you spent a lot of time in LA. You spent a lot of time with movies and celebrities. And from my perspective, sometimes some of that world appears like vapid and filled with drama but at the same time, you also have a part of you that is so seeking wisdom and so seeking deep truths. You talk a lot about gratitude. So like, how do those two things interact in your own mind? I don't think you can be successful anywhere, whether it's Hollywood or anywhere else in your life, unless you are grateful. So I think that there, there's a big crossover there for sure. And I also think that what you see on the surface sometimes with the tabloids in Hollywood isn't necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. I've been so fortunate to work on a lot of different movie sets, uh, both like with speaking lines. Like one day, one day you'll come across a movie and you'll be like, wait a second. Ah, there he is. I've been in a few movies playing a reporter. I've been in a bunch of other movies as a, a background actor. And the thing that I love about being on a set is everybody is working together from the lighting people to the costume, to the set design, to the camera, to the director of photography, to the actors, to everybody. Everybody's working together for that one shot that you're seeing on the screen at that one moment. And I think that that cohesiveness is something that I don't think is talked about a lot, Uh, but to see that firsthand... Uh, I think that really tells a a lesson of like teamwork and how that can come together. And, you know, I think it depends on the script being great, but it can come together and, you know, really pay off with a great film. What are the elements that make for a great team in the context of a movie or a, a TV show? Everybody needs to be there for the greater good of whatever the project is that you're, you're in there for. And I think the cool thing about movies in particular is everybody that's working on the set from top to bottom, whatever your role is, everybody's like super passionate about the project. And I think that that's a huge, huge thing. And that's different from, I think, a lot of other workplaces. Like everybody there is, wants to be there. Everyone's like excited to be there. And also most of the people there are the very best at what they do, like the very best costume designers, makeup artists, director of photography. So I think that when you get all of those great people together, it's hard to not make something that's great. Could you tell when you're on the set or when you're interviewing rather of a movie, if you're at a press junket or you're doing podcasts with people from a a particular movie, could you tell like, oh, there was cohesion on this movie or, oh, like this seems kind of like everyone's at a different place mentally. Like, could you oh, actually yeah, tell the interviewer? 
Yeah, there's a lot of times when they'll pair people together for these junket interviews. Sometimes it's two in a room. Sometimes it's even three people in a room. And you can tell, like, when you're walking into the room and they've already got, like, funny banter going or maybe they've got, like, a little inside joke, that's when you can definitely tell, like, oh, yeah, these guys, like, have an absolute blast doing this. And then there's other times, I won't name names, but there's been other times where I walk into the room and just like, it feels cold. Like the reaction to you is cold and you're trying to be as warm and energetic as you can be. And you're just like, Ooh, did, did, like, did something happen here? And then maybe you hear a story, you know, weeks or months later of like, Oh yeah, they had a bit of a falling out on the set and you're like, huh? Okay. I will say, I will add this on. I've only been a part of a few movies, but I think there's also a lot of pressure which I think can also get to people, you know, again, from top to bottom, a lot of pressure and a lot of money on the line. You know, people are putting up millions of dollars and you've got a very set schedule of like, all right, we've got 47 days to shoot this movie. If we don't get all of these shots today, well, how are we even going to be able to move on to tomorrow? Now tomorrow's off and then we can't do the day after that. So I think there is definitely a lot of pressure, but those people are pros and the way they handle that, I think can also really dictate how well the movie comes out. Yeah. So you brought up the intuition piece of you walk into a room, you feel it being cold. I think, I think everyone has this to some extent, but as an interviewer, as somebody who spends time with people, you really get to develop that muscle of intuition. How does this feel in this moment? How do you go about improving that or getting a better sense for what the other person is thinking or feeling in any given moment. The biggest lesson that I learned is that the interview begins either when you walk into the room or if it's a virtual interview, like the second that that person pops up on your screen and I made the mistake early on. And if, let me, let me kind of set the table here. When you go to do a junket interview, which is the one where the celebrity sits in like a hotel room and then every five minutes, a new reporter like cycles in, you're sitting in the hallway ready to go into that room that has, you know, Dwayne Johnson's name on the door or Meryl Streep or Keanu Reeves or whoever, Denzel Washington's name. So you're in the hallway, you know, that interview is going on behind the closed door with you know somebody in front of you in the line, but you're in the hallway and you got to be quiet. So you're talking with your colleagues and your friends and you're being quiet and like, yeah, no, I really did like the movie. That one scene towards the end was so good. So you're doing this and then you got to walk in the room and bring the energy like in a second. And I realized that like that shift for me was really difficult to do early on. You're going from whispering to like trying to be like a 10 out of 10 as energetic as you possibly can be. And I remember watching back on like some of my other interviews, like early on in my career and being like, Ooh, those seem a little flat. Yeah. Like I just, I wasn't, I wasn't bringing it. Like that doesn't feel like me. So I just started to kind of realize that when the door opened and it was your turn, or if you're on a red carpet and that person is walking up to you, like it begins now. So I think that that was a really big thing. And I also believe that the bigger that your energy can be, like people like to match energy. So if, if you are, if you have big energy, they're going to pep themselves up a little bit. Yeah. If you have low energy and you're you know sitting back in your chair, they're going to do a little bit of that too, unless they're an absolute professional. But I think that that's a big part of it. Like try to bring the energy that you want to hopefully have them match. Yeah, that that's a really great tip. And it's funny because I was just reviewing some of my most recent interviews. And I'm like, this is interesting because 
what I imagined is different than how it came out on the screen. Mm. I thought I was being grounded and present. And then I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, this looks flat to me. Like, why didn't I bring more energy here? What type of tips can you tell a, a new or a novice interviewer like myself? Like, what could you, you suggest for somebody who, who wants to be full of more energy? Like, are there any particular practices you do? I'd say go back and watch your old stuff. And if your old stuff doesn't make you cringe a little bit, then you are not heading in the right direction. Like you should be watching your stuff from six months ago and a year ago and going, oh, could have worded that a little bit better. Oh, what was I thinking there? So I think that that's a really big part of it. And get comfortable seeing yourself on camera. Get comfortable with how you sound. Yes, that is the sound of your voice. I know it sounds different in your own ears, but yes, that is how the world hears you. It's that whole idea of like when you hear yourself on the, on the voicemail for the first time, you're like, oh, do I really sound like that? Like, yes, yes, you do. And <laughs> the quicker you can get comfortable with, yeah, you're, this side of your mouth moves up a little bit when you talk or you do this weird thing with your eyebrows, the, more, the quicker you can get comfortable with that, the quicker you'll be able to improve and get better. So, and, and that's easy now because, again, we have a camera that's in our pocket. If you really do want to get better at just being comfortable on camera, grab your phone, record yourself for like a minute a day, just speaking to the camera. And I think that you'll realize, do it for like 30 days. And I think you'll realize by day 30 that you're way more comfortable now than you were 30 days ago. It's interesting because human beings didn't have the ability to record themselves at will. This is like an invention yep. of the past 10 years, really, that anybody, anywhere, anytime could just record themselves. What do you think that idea, how does that change society? That's a huge change because I think that if we're going way back before there was any sort of video or audio recording capabilities, things happened in the moment. And then the only way that you could like relay that piece of information, which oftentimes became history, was by the smartest person in your village, which was the only person that was able to like read and write, they wrote it down and that was it. I actually think back a lot of times, like if, because so few people, if we're going back hundreds and thousands of years, so few people were literate that like, if you were just one of the smartest people in your village that knew how to read and write, like you were literally quite literally making history. Wow. I think now though, it's even changed throughout my career. I started in television in 2005 and if I wanted to record something, I had to go into the TV station, grab a very large, very heavy, very expensive camera, set it up on a tripod, white balance it, you know, like do the whole thing and then hit record and then put this DVC pro tape into a tape deck. Like there was a lot of steps. And then I think the, the iPhone changed a lot of things. We spoke earlier about how the internet changed everything. Absolutely. Internet game changer. The iPhone kind of took the internet and put it in our pocket here. And I think that that's been a massive, massive shift, especially for somebody, somebody who wants to be on camera. Now you can just record yourself. This is the most exciting thing. Now you can be famous on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube in a way that you never could have before by creating your own content. So I think that there's been a shift from broadcasting, which is quite literally that broad to more niche casting, which is like, you know, if when we're done this interview, if I want to go 
on YouTube and just watch NSYNC singing the song Bye 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 live, like how niche is that? I can do that. And I can watch those videos for the, the rest of my day. You know, and, and 20 years ago in the MTV generation, if you wanted to watch music videos, that was it. You turned on the TV and you hoped that you liked a few of those songs and that was it. So I think that this idea from broadcasting down to niche casting has just changed everything. Like you can be an expert on the most, the nichiest of niche things. You could be an expert on like natural peanut butter, not, not natural foods, not whole foods, not healthy foods. You could be an expert on like one specific type of peanut butter. Like that's mind blowing to me. Yeah. Well, what would you do if you were, you're graduating college today instead of 20 years ago? What, what would change? What types of things would you do? Would it still be go to a TV station or try to get an internship there? Or would it be something else? The reason that I got an internship that led to me at first being a news reporter was because that was the only way I could be on TV. I wanted to host a TV show. I was so inspired by Roger Lodge, of Roger Lodge, who hosted this show Blind Date. I wanted to like host a dating show, like I wanted to host like a studio type of show, but those opportunities didn't really exist, especially in Canada. So it was like, all right, well, how can I get on TV? The local news station. Okay, great. Well, then could that turn into MTV or Much Music or something else from there? Possibly. I'd say that now, if you're graduating from college and you want to be a content creator or a broadcaster, I would say if you're just starting now, you're probably already starting a little bit late. I mean, I would think that if somebody already has the dream and the goal and the passion to do it, they've probably been making videos for a long time. Like, I mean, Mr. Beast is a great example. He was making videos for a long time before we knew who Mr. Beast was. And then it finally took a video for him to pop off and, you know, now look at the success that he's having. But I would say just lean into what, you're really passionate about. And if you don't know what you're passionate about, lean into the things that you like, because those could be like the gateway to the things that you're passionate about. So if you love playing guitar, maybe pick up the guitar like once a day and make sure that that's a thing you do. If you love making videos, well, make it a goal that you're going to make two videos every week. Or if you have a podcast, like make this agreement with yourself that you're going to put out X amount of content per day, per week, per month, whatever it happens to be. And don't ever waver on that. And the day that it stops being fun for you is probably the day that you stop doing it. And I would also say that if we're talking about content creating specifically, I think you got to love every aspect of it. Maybe you're not going to be the best you know, camera operator. Maybe you're not going to be the best editor. Maybe you're not the best on camera. But if you love all the aspects about it, it's going to really come through in the content that you make. So what would you do? Like, what's the agreement you would make with yourself if you were just, let's call it 16 or 18 or, or 20, or you're just, you're trying to put out content. That's something you want to do. What would be the first agreement you would, you might make? I would start. I think that that's the biggest mistake that people don't make or that people don't do. Yeah. So I would start because that's the biggest thing that people don't do is they don't actually take the first step. They talk about starting a YouTube channel. They talk about starting a podcast. And they've got all these great ideas and a great name and maybe even a great logo. And they never actually take the first step because they're scared of what happens beyond that. Hmm. So I'd say just start. And if you haven't started yet, I would ask you, like, what are you waiting for? 
What is the thing that you're scared of? And try to figure out what that is. But I'd say once you start, then make a schedule of like, all right, if it's a YouTube video, for example, one YouTube video a week. Every Monday, you're going to put out a video. If it's a podcast, one podcast a week. Every Monday, you put out a podcast, whatever it happens to be. Make that agreement with yourself and then see how it feels and then go from there. If you love it, you want to lean into it a little bit more, double it. Yeah. And so at one point in your journey, you decided you were putting videos out on YouTube. You were also broadcasting for television. So it was like this multi-edged sword. And then you decide to go all in on the the next generation of media and how that's going to play out. And I know that Tyler Perry played a critical role in that occurring. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'd interviewed Tyler Perry a bunch of different times and he was always so kind to me. And I remember after like, maybe it was our third or fourth interview. He said, dream bigger. I'm like, Oh no, like things are pretty good. Like I'm hosting this TV show. I get to talk to great people like you. I've got this fishing company that I just recently started. It's doing really well. It's called woo tungsten. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. But <laughs> dream bigger. And I just kind of brushed it off. Then I would see him every like six ish months when he was promoting his latest project. And it would just be like, Hey, dream bigger. And that really, like those two words really started like ringing around in my head. And I was like, like Tyler Perry's story is a fascinating story. He's no more talented than you or I, but he quite literally did that, that exact thing. He dreamed bigger and look at the life and the career that he's had as a result of that. So I think it was like, I was hearing that from somebody in the position that he was in made me realize like, oh yeah, like things were good. And I was always striving for more, but this kind of made me go, I gotta strive for a lot more. Like I wanna like 10X what I'm doing right now. And and that was kind of where I went. Yeah, I, I grew up just outside of Toronto, been so fortunate to be able to live and work in the US. But my goal was never to be on local television. And while I had so many amazing, amazing opportunities being on local television in both Cleveland and Miami, I realized I wanted more than that. And that was when I decided to bet on myself and dream bigger. Were there anything in particular that you did to dream bigger or to take bigger actions? Was it like uploading more YouTube videos or going out of your way to do certain things? I started to realize that if I was willing to do the things that other people weren't willing to do, I was going to get the results that other people weren't going to get. So if somebody said, yeah, I'll, I'll sit down with you for an interview. I wouldn't then go, oh yeah, but they live in this other city and boy, I'd have to fly there and I'd have to rent a car when I get there and a hotel. I would just go, okay, great, let's do it. And I would figure it out on the back end. And I think that there's too many people that do that first approach of like, well, yeah, I wish I could interview so-and-so. It's like, well, you can, they just said yes. Uh, so I, that was a big thing for me. Like I drove five hours to do an interview with Chris Jericho in the back seat of his car, right when he signed with AEW, it was a huge interview that got over a million views. And that was a huge thing for me to be able to do that. And super, super grateful that he said yes to that. I did another interview with Tony Khan, right when all elite wrestling started. 
and it was like a five and a half hour drive to Jacksonville and then right back to like edit the interview while we were driving. That was a, that was a really big thing. And it was like right before I left local news, I think I had done like 17 interviews the year before, 17 interviews on my YouTube channel, which was a solid amount. Like that's more than once a month. And I went, man, what if I could do, what if I could do 50? Yeah. No, I was like, what if I could do 40 this year? And then I was like, oh, I'm really like pumping these out. What if I could do 50? Like one a week. And I ended up doing 100. And that was when things really started to ramp up. And I, I truly believe that perception is reality. So the more of these that you can do, the more chances you have to be in front of somebody and the more chance you have for them to discover your content and also hear the message of the interviews that you're putting out. Well, Chris, you've given a masterclass in the past hour of just the ways you're able to put yourself out there, speak so eloquently, be able to deliver such a strong message in such a powerful way. Thank you so much for, for taking the time, being willing to share all your gifts with the world and share your way of communicating today. I, I really appreciate it. Danny, thank you. And congrats to you on everything that you've done. And I appreciate you being like, yeah, I'm willing to fly around and do interviews wherever. Like, that's amazing. And uh, I, I just look forward to the growth that you're going to have over the next six months and then you know, six years. Thank you, man. Anything we'd like to leave the audience with before they go, uh, we'll have all your social links down below. So feel free to plug those. And, and what's the final closing word we can leave people with? Well, wherever you're listening to this, go check out my podcast as well called Insight with Chris Van Vliet. And I end every of one of my podcast episodes asking my guests what are three things that they're grateful for. So I would just encourage anybody that's listening to this right now to think to themselves and say out loud three things that you are grateful for in your own life. And maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe it's been a bad year. But if you start focusing on the things that you have in your life, rather than the things that you don't have in your life, it's really hard to be in a bad mood. It is impossible to be simultaneously grateful and angry at the same time. So I would just say, think of those three things that you're grateful for in your life right now and uh, watch your day turn around. I love it. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for this beautiful conversation. Dude, grateful for you. Thank you so much.